Okay, so here's the deal. My name's Ben, and I'm literally a child of the 80s. My parents were really cool and let me watch all sorts of movies when I was a little kid, even violent grown-up ones, which I probably really shouldn't have. I've been a movie geek ever since, and now that I'm a responsible grown-up with a child of my own, I'm starting to make a list of all the classic movies I want them to watch and enjoy. Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Big Trouble in Little China, you know, the usual. But I'm wondering, were the 80s really as good as everyone seems to believe? Were all those films I watched as a young, innocent, highly susceptible kid really as good as I remember? And all these remakes that seem to be coming out every goddamn week, are they really that much of an improvement? Are they even necessary in the first place? So I've got a plan. I'm going to go back and watch all those films that were released throughout my childhood, including those classics that I've never seen and really should have, and find out if after 30 odd years they still hold up. I'll also try and find out what happened to those involved in making them. Have they become a success, or have they just disappeared into obscurity? Hell, I'll even dig up some old 80s music to have them listen to. So, please join me as I attempt to watch... Every 80s movie ever made. So these are the rules. I've compiled a list of movies made between 1980 and 1989 from two sources the Wikipedia page for 1980s in film, and an online encyclopedia of 80s movies at fastrewind.com. This has given me a total of just under a 1,000 films to watch. It's not the complete list of every movie ever made in that decade, but it's a start. And besides, if I go at a rate of one film a week, it'll take me just over 19 years to get through that lot alone. Still, it's going to keep me busy at least. If a film is a sequel released in the same decade, I'll attempt to watch all of them together. That should cut the total time down a bit. Oh, and while I'll be using a variety of means to watch the movies, you know, Netflix, Sky, YouTube, other internet sources, shall we say, some initial research has shown that some of these films just aren't available to view right now, so maybe it'll only take me 17 years. If you'd like to suggest 80s movies for me to watch, especially those really obscure ones that are probably missing from my list, you can email me at emem at hotmail.co.uk, that's E-E-M-E-M. Or get hold of me on Twitter using at every80smovie. That's at every80smovie. Right then, episode one. Here goes. The film. Stripes, released in 1981. With a budget of approximately $10 million, it grossed $6.1 million on its opening weekend towards a total of $85 million in the USA. The director. Ivan Reitman. Born in 1946, his parents were Jewish refugees who came to Canada in 1950. His mother was a survivor Auschwitz, his father was an underground resistance fighter. He produced Shivers and Rabid for David Cronenberg before making his break as producer on National Lampoon's Animal House and director of Meatballs in 1978 and 79 respectively. After making Stripes in 81, he then went on to direct a string of successful comedies including Twins, Kindergarten Cop, Dave Jr., the very underrated Evolution, and the frankly fucking awful My Super Ex-Girlfriend. Oh, and he also made a couple of very little-known low-budget features called Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, but I doubt you'll have seen them, they're really obscure. In the early 90s, Reitman began to move more into a role of producer and executive producer, involved in films such as Beethoven, Space Jam, Old School, and even Up in the Air, which was directed by his son, Jason. He continues to be involved in rumours surrounding the proposed Ghostbusters 3. At the time of recording in March 2013, it's still not known whether the third movie will ever come into existence, but I'm going to put my neck on the line and send a message to you people listening to this in 10 years' time. Man, that was a massive disappointment, wasn't it? Also listed as upcoming films on these IMDb is Triplets, which I've got a really bad feeling is a sequel to Twins, and a Baywatch movie, which I'm sure we're all very excited to see. The Stars 
William James Bill Murray, who plays John Winger, born in 1950. First gained exposure on Saturday Night Live before a string of successful comedy movies, starting with Meatballs in 1979, Caddyshack in 1980, Stripes, Ghostbusters, Scrooged, which is categorically one of the best Christmas films ever made, and Groundhog Day. He more recently became known for more serious roles and appeared in a number of Wes Anderson movies such as The Royal Tenenbaums, The Life Aquatic with Steve Sizu, and Moonrise Kingdom. He also enjoyed massive critical acclaim for 2003's Lost in Translation, and he's a mahoosive fan of golf, and hence somebody that I would like to get to know very well. Harold Ramis, who plays Russell Zizky, was born in 1944. He worked at a mental institution for seven months, which he claims gave him great preparation for dealing with actors. He co-wrote Animal House and Meatballs and directed Caddyshack before Murray insisted Ramis co-star with him in Stripes to help him with improvisation while filming. He co-wrote and starred in Ghostbusters 1 and 2, but arguably his greatest work is Groundhog Day, which he wrote and directed. Equally arguably is his worst work, which is the fucking appalling Neanderthal comedy Year One, starring Jack Black and Michael Cera. Warren Oates, who plays Sergeant Hulker, was born in 1928 and died in 1982. He's best known for performances in the 60s and 70s, particularly the TV series Gunsmoke, and worked with Sam Peckinpah in The Wild Bunch and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. His last role after Stripes was as Captain Jack Braddock in Blue Thunder, which was released after his death and dedicated to him. The film was also significant first roles for a number of other actors. John Candy, who plays Ox, didn't even have to audition, as co-writer Dan Goldberg knew him personally from Canada. He went on to star in major comedies such as Planes, Trains and Automobiles, Cool Runnings and Uncle Buck, and he tragically died in 1994. John Larroquette, who plays Captain Stillman, has one of those faces that I think I've seen absolutely everywhere, but looking at his body of work, I can't say I've seen that much. He's best known for Night Court, which if you're American probably means a hell of a lot, but it never really saw the light of day in the UK. There's lots of TV guest roles and small parts in movies such as Star Trek 3 and JFK, but nothing to write home about, which is a shame because he's absolutely brilliant in Stripes. Sean Young, who plays military police officer Louise Cooper, followed up this role with Blade Runner opposite Harrison Ford, No Way Out and a small part in Wall Street in 1987, which shot her to the top of the pile, but some poor choices of work, including a Razzie Award for 1991's A Kiss Before Dying, meant she slipped back into relative obscurity. Her last big role was probably Ace Ventura Pet Detective in 1994, in which we discover she has a penis. Way to go, girl! Stripes also features the first roles for Judge Reinhold, best known for Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, and Timothy Busfield, who you might recognise in Field of Dreams or her occurring role in The West Wing. Bill Paxton's also credited as Soldier, but I couldn't see him on screen for love nor money. The writer. Writers, in fact. Along with Harold Ramis, Stripes was also written by Len Blum and Dan Goldberg. Len Blum co-wrote Meatballs with Ramis and Goldberg, and along with Goldberg as well, was also involved in the animated anthology Heavy Metal and the fantastically titled Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. His somewhat sparse filmography is less than stellar. His most recognisable work includes Beethoven's Second in 1983 and Over the Hedge and the Steve Martin-led Pink Panther remake, both in 2006. What a great year that was for him. Following work with Len Bloom through the 80s, Dan Goldberg moved into producing roles alongside Ivan Reitman. Road Trip, Evolution, Old School were all made under his ring. He continued his involvement in this current fact for Gross Out Comedy as producer for The Hangover 1 and 2 and the upcoming 3. The Blood. John Winger, played by Bill Murray, is a cab driver who, in the space of two hours, quits his job, has his car repossessed and watches his girlfriend leave him as he has no ambition or desire. Realising his life is a failure, he then decides arbitrarily to join the US Army. Talking his best friend Russell Zizky, played by Howard Ramis, into joining him, they drive to a recruiting office and are soon off to basic training. 
Upon arrival at Fort Arnold, they meet their fellow recruits, including the overweight Ox, played by John Candy, the naive Cruiser, played by John Deal, and the perpetually stoned Elmo, played by Judge Reinhold. Not long after arriving, Winger offends Drill Sergeant Holker, who's played by Warren Oates, and he's immediately ordered outside to do push-ups. From here on in, he stands out as a misfit amongst the rest of basic training. Their commanding officer is the incompetent Captain Stillman, played by John Larroquette, who really struggles to maintain the illusion of being in charge. As basic training progresses, Winger and Ziski become close to two female military police officers, named Louise, played by Sean Young, and Stella, played by PJ Souls, who, despite their initial reservations, begin to fall for the two men. Not long before graduation, Sergeant Holker is injured when Stillman orders a mortar crew to fire without setting target coordinates. What a genius. The men go to a mud wrestling bar, where Winger convinces Ox to wrestle a group of women. When the club's raided by MPs and police, Stella and Louise cover for Winger and Ziski and take them separately back to base. The rest of the platoon is taken back to face Captain Stillman, who threatens to force them to repeat basic training. After wooing the two women when they break into the house of General Barnaby, Winger and Ziski return to base, and Winger motivates the platoon with a rousing speech and begins to get them in shape for graduation. After a long night of drilling, they oversleep and almost miss the ceremony. They rush to the parade grounds out of uniform and give an unconventional yet highly coordinated drill display led by Winger. General Barnaby is impressed when he finds out that they had to complete training without a drill sergeant, and decides they're just the kind of go-getters he wants working on his top-secret EM-50 project in Italy. Once in Italy, their mission is to guard the EM-50 urban assault vehicle, essentially an RV fit to burst with weapons technology. Bored with sitting in an empty hangar, Winger and Ziski steal the EM-50 to visit their girlfriends, who are now stationed in West Germany. When Stillman finds the EM-50 missing, he launches an unauthorised mission to get the vehicle back before his superiors find out it's gone. Holker, now recovered and returned to the platoon, urges Stillman not to go, but is overruled. Stillman, in his genius, inadvertently leads the platoon across the border into communist Czechoslovakia. Holker, realising where they are, jumps out of the truck just before it's captured. He makes a Mayday radio call, and overhearing this, Winger and Ziski realise the platoon came looking for them, and that their friends are in trouble. Winger, Ziski, Louise and Stella take the EM-50 and infiltrate the military base, where the platoon is being held. With a little assistance from Holker, they somehow manage to free everyone. Upon returning to the US, Winger, Ziski, Louise, Stella and Holker are treated as heroes, each being awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. Shown in those classic spinny heads in the newspaper headlines, Holker retires and opens a Holker Burger restaurant franchise. Stella appears on the cover of Penthouse, Ox makes the cover of Tiger Beat, and Winger is featured on the cover of Newsworld. Captain Stillman, however, is reassigned to a weather station in Alaska. Movie trivia. Trivia. Some things you may not know about the movie Stripes. Number one. The film was originally conceived as a vehicle for Cheech and Chong, believe it or not. Ivan Reitman has also stated the reason this fell through was because their manager insisted, without the pair's knowledge, on a 25% share of Reitman's next five films, which he wasn't willing to give up. Can't really blame him, seeing as his next film would be Ghostbusters and make a shit ton of money. The script was then rewritten for Murray and Ramis following their work together on Meatballs, and most of the stoner humour originally written for Cheech and Chong was shifted to the Elmo character played by George Reinhold. But just imagine, if you will, Ghostbusters with Cheech and Chong. Number two. A prank during production to have some of the characters drag Warren Oates' character into the mud during an obstacle course scene led to Oates chipping a tooth and Reitman getting a complete bollocking from the well-renowned actor. Number three. Among the crowd at the graduation parade at the end of the film, albeit unseen and uncredited, was PJ Soule's then-husband, Dennis Quaid. Number four. The US Army was actually really helpful and cooperative during filming, which is surprising since the script depicts the military as being made up largely of complete and utter buffoons. My guess? They showed the Army a script for a completely different film. 
Number five, the scene the morning after John Winger and Stella Hansen have sex in General Barnaby's house when they emerge from a trunk at the end of the bed is actually a lift from a completely different cutscene when the guys and girls meet up in Germany. This lift is now something of a continuity error in the special edition DVD where those cutscenes in the German hotel are now restored. Number six, according to John Larroquette himself, he was drunk while shooting many of his scenes. Good on you, fella. And number seven, Kim Basinger was offered the part of MP officer Stella Hansen but she was turned down when her agent asked for too much money. What a bastard. Read your notes. So, here's some notes I made while I was watching the film. Number one, boring credits. See, I like opening credits where they draw you in, or they at least look cool, but this is just plain text over the screen. It's pretty dull. And weirdly, it's also bright pink, which is a really odd colour choice. I'd have thought a camouflage green or any old green would do. Number two, Ramus's hair. I mean, it's big. It's freaking huge. It does get cut back later in the film, but good lord, you could find things living in that damn hairdo. Number three, the taxi scene. Reminded me very much of Groundhog Day. There's a scene early on when a bitchy rich woman gets into John's taxi and it's the precursor to him giving it all up. He clearly doesn't care and he's driving around as though he's out of control and, oh no, we're going to die. And it really made me flashback to the similar scene in Groundhog Day where Bill Murray's character, whose name I can't remember right now, has had enough and is going to kill himself by crashing a taxi. I wonder when they were filming Groundhog Day, they picked up from that. Number four, where's the reverse of the slacker guy getting dumped by the girl who wants to move on with her life? Anyone? Because I can't think of one where it's a slacker girl and the guy dumps her. Never happens that way. But please prove me wrong. Number five, Ramis really isn't that good an actor. He gets quite a few of the best lines, although the way he performs them makes them feel like they're actually scripted rather than improvised as Murray and Candy etc. would do. There is a little sequence where Ox talks about why he's joined the army and Ramis is sat next to him in shot. His reactions are so over the top they're really funny but they're also so over the top it makes him look like a drama student on his first day in school. Number six. I can think of better ways to get over losing your job, car and girlfriend like finding a new job to buy a new car and then going out to get a new girl. Besides, if he hadn't thrown the keys to the taxi in the river he could have maybe kept that one. It's just, it's a kind of weak device to force Winger to join the army the guys are literally watching TV and look at it and say to each other, ah, oh, fuck it, let's do that. Number seven. Unfortunately, I can't take the name Sergeant Hulker seriously, and I blame WWFE, whatever the hell wrestling is called, for that. Number eight. Stillman. You think he's an instant arsehole? Like, literally, wow, that guy's a bastard. But then 30 seconds later, he trips up over something, looks at it, and then tells the aide to have that removed. And you know he's just a complete idiot. Larroquette does a really good job with this character, and he's one of the high points of the movie, definitely. Number nine. Hulker, kind of spoilt by Full Metal Jacket. Warren Oates just isn't quite nasty enough as a drill sergeant for me, and I think that's because Arlie Ermey did such an iconic performance in Full Metal Jacket that any other similar character is just bound to be compared. Yeah, sure, you know, Oates does pull off the I'll kick your ass lines, but even his face is just a little bit too nice for my liking. Maybe if I hadn't seen Full Metal Jacket, I wouldn't be quite so down on it, but uh, yeah, it's he's just a bit too soft. Number 10, the hair shaving scene. There has to be one in any army film. It's the law. Although what I do want to know is why when the guys walk out afterwards, John Candy's got a shaved head, and yet Bill Murray and Ramis have a pretty decent hairdo. Uh, was Ramis's big-ass hairdo using up all the power on the razors or something? I don't know. 
Number 11. The toilet face-off between Hulker and Winger doesn't quite sit right. Apparently, Ivan Reitman put it in the film to give Murray some serious acting work to do, but it just doesn't quite sit with the rest of the film, and it's just a little jarring. Number 12, and this is my exact quote that I wrote down. Conveniently attractive MP officers, in brackets, who are sluts. Yeah, okay, we need a romantic interest for the leads, and I can live with them looking like PJ Shells and Sean Young, but honestly, they meet all of five times, most of the time the guys are in trouble, before both girls are, oh, I love you, oh, you're so fantastic. I've actually pulled off a clip for later on in the podcast, which just really annoys me in the way that Stella simpers in front of Winger. And with all due respect, Bill Murray is not the most handsome guy in the world, is he? Number 13, the pom-pom club. It's mental, it's got mud wrestling, but the police turn up for no reason whatsoever. My guess is that there's probably a small scene that got cut where it's discovered the boys have gone missing. And apparently the mud wrestling scene with John Candy was made up on the fly. And Ivan Reitman really had to persuade Candy to do it. I mean, it looks it, but John, really? You needed persuading to do that? Nah. Number 14, the world's most incompetent general. You've decided that the top secret weapons project should be guarded and tested by a platoon of men who've just done a dance sequence in front of you dressed like slobs. And you've just announced said top secret EM50 project over the Tannoy in front of a few hundred people. Well done, sir. You're a fucking idiot. 15. The final sequence is the A-team because nobody dies at all. There's grenades, machine guns, tanks, a flamethrower, a fucking cannon, and yet nobody dies at all. Finally, 16. It's funny how clunky the film is. I think it's a setback from using lots of improvisation on set because you need to somehow work around the changes in dialogue and structure of the scene as it evolves as well as cut out all the bits that don't quite work and cover them with cutaway shots but even the sound editing's a little ropey. It works, it kind of gets away with it because it goes with the fast and loose style of, of the characters and the story but man, only just. The verdict. I like it. It's a good film. I mean, it's by no means a classic but it's got a happy-go-lucky vibe to it that, you know, even on a technical level. The best word I could probably use to describe it is amiable. If it crossed my path again, I'd probably watch it all the way through, but I'm not going to go out of my way to get hold of it. I'm not, probably not going to buy the DVD. But if it's on TV, yeah, I'd sit and watch it. It's, uh, it's a nice way of passing the time. Sound clips. So here's a few clippy clips that I picked out that piqued my interest while I was watching the film, and I hope you enjoy them too. Number one. First time we meet Harold Ramis' character. It's a cheap gag, but yeah, it works. Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in and start speaking English, but there are just a couple of things I need to know first because I've never done this before. So how many of you would say you speak English fairly well, but with some difficulty? A little English? Yes, you speak some English. Son of bitch, shit. Son of bitch, shit. Although, with him saying it's his first time too, it does make me wonder what brought him to that point, and I wonder if there is quite a good backstory that might be covered in another film. Number two. Considering he's got no job, no car, and no girlfriend, Winger still has a pretty sweet apartment, including a basketball net above the fireplace. But here's what happens when Zizki drops by to say hello. It's more of a visual gag, admittedly, but I really love the reaction as well. Nice shot, huh? 
boom, right through the window. The gag carries on for a bit as well because Winger shouts to the guys on the street to throw it back up. And of course, the basketball comes crashing back through another window. Number three, Winger and Ziski take an interview for the army positions. Not sure whether the army still asks this question though nowadays. Are either of you uh, homosexuals? You mean like flaming or? Well, it's a, it's a standard question we have to ask. No, we're not homosexual, but we are willing to learn. Yeah, would they send us someplace special? What is a flaming homosexual? Sounds like a cocktail. As in a drink, not a story about... Uh, oh, fuck it, forget it. Number four. Having joined the army, Winger waxes lyrical about the benefits to Ziski. This is pretty sweet. Free clothing. Look at this stuff. Chicks in New York paying top dollar for this garbage. Yeah, how about that lunch? What was that brown stuff? Mmm, brown stuff. Tasty. Number five. Ziski explains his support for his brothers in arms. I've always been kind of a pacifist. When I was a kid, my father told me, never hit anyone in anger unless you're absolutely sure you can get away with it. I don't know what kind of soldier I'm going to make, but I want you guys to know that if we ever get into real heavy combat, I'll be right behind you guys every step of the way. And to be honest, that's pretty much my stance, although not only will I be behind you guys, I'll be running in the opposite fucking direction. Number six, the Ox teaches Cruiser how to play poker. Oh, I'm full. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, I'm still in. Cruz, how about you? Maybe I should fold. Well, let me see. Let me see first. No, not with a hand like that. Come on. Dare me. Go on. Bluff me. Come on. How much should I bet? If it were me, I'd bet everything. But that's me. I'm an aggressive gambler. Mr. Vegas. <laughs> Come on. Go for it. Go for it. Yes, yes, there we go. I'm in. What do you got? Well, I got a full house. Three threes and two sixes. That's a full house. What have you got? Well, you have fours. I got an ace. You got an ace, got an eight, and a seven. Well, you lose, you see. If you would have had four fours, you would have won. <laughs> You're getting good at this, aren't you? You like it? Isn't this fun? You're pretty good for first time, really. Man, I wish I knew somebody as dumb as that. Although, normally I'm the one getting screwed over. Hmm, never mind. Number seven, Angry Kermit. Winger decides he's had enough and he decides to split in the middle of the night. Zissy discovers his empty bed and chases after him. When he catches up, well, have a listen and see if he sounds a little like a well-known green puppet. Where are you going? You going AWOL? Are you going AWOL? No, I'm deserting. You idiot. You desert now. It's a federal offense. Come on. I'll take my chance with the feds. Get up. You're not going anywhere. Now listen to me. You're going to finish basic training. Oh, yeah? You're going to keep your mouth shut. Oh, yeah? And you're going to do everything he tells you. Oh, yeah? And you know why? Why? Because you talked me into this. That's why, you idiot. It was your idea. I didn't talk you into this. You needed this. I'm going to kill you, damn you! Where's the great pay? Where's the travel? Where's the Winnebago? God damn it! Sounds like Kermit the Frog, yeah? Yeah? Anyone? Eh, maybe just me then. Moving on. Number eight. In the pom-pom club, there's an auction to see who wants to fight lovely ladies in the mud. And how do you persuade someone to do it? Just like this. Oh. <laughs> 
train killer. You're a lean, mean, violent machine. I'll do it. All right, give me your money. Number nine, the girly, girly girl bit that really annoyed me more than anything else in the film. Who's your friend? Who's your buddy? I am, aren't I? You're crazy about me, aren't you? No. You're incredibly head over heels in love with me. No. You're helplessly, hopelessly, deeply in love with me, aren't you? Yes. Oh, God, she's just, she's so soppy. She really is just so sloppy. Just grow a pair, will you? No, don't grow a pair. That's probably not a good idea. But get some, will you? It's just, oh. Winds me up. It winds me up so much, I can't even talk. Number ten. Special guest star, Garfield. Oh, Stillman freaked out when the MPs brought us back. If we screw up graduation, we're going to have to take basics all over again. Oh, Cruz, it's been a lot of fun the first time, hasn't it? I can't handle basic training again, man. Actually, Judge Reinhold, but, you know, it is Garfield. Number eleven. Winger's big speech. And, weirdly, the second time in the film he uses the word mutant. We're all very different people. We're not Watusi. We're not Spartans. We're Americans with a capital A, huh? You know what that means? Do you? That means that our forefathers were kicked out of every decent country in the world. We are the wretched refuse. We're the underdog. We're mutts. Here's proof. His nose is cold. But there's no animal that's more faithful, that's more loyal, more lovable than the mutt. Who saw Old Yeller? Who cried when Old Yeller got shot at the end? Nobody cried when Old Yeller got shot, I'm sure. I cried my eyes out. So we're all dog faces. We're all very, very different, but there is one thing that we all have in common. We were all stupid enough to enlist in the army. We're mutants. There's something wrong with us, something very, very wrong with us, something seriously wrong with us. We're soldiers, but we're American soldiers. We've been kicking ass for 200 years. We're 10 and 1. Now, we don't have to worry about whether or not we've practiced. We don't have to worry about whether Captain Stillman wants to have us hung. All we have to do is to be the great American fighting soldier that is inside each one of us. Now, do what I do and say what I say. And make me proud. Fall in? Yeah! Yeah! I want to go out and shoot someone now. Fuck yeah, America. And I'm British. Yeah. Whoa. Number 12. Boo Army Training. Why Boo Army Training? Here's why. The two. A one. Two. Boo! Boo! 
Where the hell have you been, soldier? Training, sir! Training, sir! What kind of training, son? Army training, sir! Army training, sir! <laughs> Just like last night, only better! Patch hold Number 13, the Oxen Cruiser again. The poor, poor bastard. What are you doing? No, no, get off. Get off. See, you gotta make my bunk. See, we're in Italy. The guy on the top bunk, he's gotta make the guy on the bottom bunk, he's gotta make his bed all the time. See, it's in the regulations. See, we were in Germany, I would have to make yours. But we're in Italy, so you gotta make mine. It's the regulations. Number 14, when Winger and Ziski decide to rescue the guys, they crash through a border control barrier. And it's safe to say the two guys who work there are, shall we say, foreign? By the way, having just listened to the clip on its own without the visuals, I must state that the guys are not having sex, okay? Despite what you might be thinking, you dirty bastard. Number 15, it's Czechoslovakia, in which Bill Murray turns into a complete Italian-American. Come on, it's Czechoslovakia. We zip in, we pick them up, we zip right out again. We're not going to Moscow. It's Czechoslovakia. It's like going into Wisconsin. Well, I got this shit kicked out of me in Wisconsin once. Forget it. Hey, what the fuck? And that is the end of the clippage enjoyment for today. So, what should we look at next? The soundtrack. Now, I'm a bit of a soundtrack geek, so I'll be covering the music and musicians involved in the movies I'm watching, and hopefully playing something from each film as a little bonus content at the end. The score for Stripes was composed by Elmer Bernstein, who was born in 1922 and died in 2004. His filmography is huge, including The Magnificent Seven, The Ten Commandments, The Great Escape, Ghostbusters, and he won an Oscar for Thoroughly Modern Millie, one win in a total of 14 nominations over the years. This guy has been busy. Although, to be honest, Stripes is a pretty weak score. It's got a standard bombastic army-type melody, along with a plinky piano theme for the lighter sections, which is a technical phrase, I'll have you know, but it never really holds the attention or has enough of an identity all of its own. Considering Bernstein's body of work, this really feels like a phoned-in piece. The remake. No remakes and no sequels. Well, none that I know of. Although you could argue that any other army camp movie that came later in the 80s and early 90s, uh, Biloxi Blues, for example, were essentially remakes of this but then you could even say that this is a remake of Private Benjamin that was released the previous year. Should it be remade? Well, to be honest, I don't think it would be a disaster. The film hasn't aged drastically, but I could see a remake starring a comedian who's up and coming and looking for a starring role that's not too challenging. I actually thought this would have been a brilliant early role for Jack Black, although obviously he doesn't need it now. Beef up the action sequences at the end, get a bit of new tech in there, some bigger special effects... Utilise the likability of the leading man, or woman, for the early sequences, and yeah, I think it would actually work pretty well. So, that's it. Episode 1 under wraps, and I hope you enjoyed it. As mentioned before, my list of just under a thousand movies has been randomised using state-of-the-art technology, Excel. So, I'll boot up my 80s computer to tell me what my next film is. 
Youngblood, starring Rob Lowe, released in 1986. I've seen it, but I can't remember any of it, so it'll be just like the first time again. Huzzah! By the way, this project is an ongoing work in progress, so if you've got any feedback or suggestions or complaints, like it's fucking rubbish, you can get hold of me at emem at hotmail.co.uk or via Twitter on at every80smovie, 80s80s. Thanks for listening, and I shall see you next time. If there is a next time... bonus content so this is where i plan to share with you a piece of music linked to the movie just seen and discussed maybe it'll be a piece of the score or prominent song played in the background but with stripes there's very little that caught my attention so in keeping with the theme of the movie i thought i'd throw in a song about being in the army itself you know if you were in the army now shall we say trouble is we've only just met and while you seem like a quite a nice person i don't really think it's fair to voice some status quo on you just yet So, while my first thought was to play the 1986 single for your enjoyment, I then discovered that In the Army Now by Quote is actually a cover of a song first released in 1981, the year Stripes were released. The stars have aligned. Oh my God, I'm a genius. It was originally recorded by Rob and Ferdy Bolland, a pair of South African-born Dutch music producers with a back catalogue under the name of Bolland and Bolland. I'll be honest... I actually prefer the Crow version because that's the one I grew up with. But the video for this version is terrible. And I urge you to search YouTube for it right now. So here you go. In the Army Now by Bolland and Bolland. Enjoy.
Yeah, you're in the 